E.J. Dion, writing in the Post, said, we cannot shy away from what history teaches. Pronouncing whole categories of people as subhuman numbs a people's moral sense and in the extreme, but unfortunately too many cases, becomes a rationale for collective cruelty. John Meacham, in his book, The Soul of America, references William Faulkner, who wrote in Requiem for a Nun that the past is never dead. It's not even past. The battles of race and power and collective cruelty stay with us and with us and with us in profound ways. So right before our very eyes, once again, as recently as yesterday, we are seeing such a pronouncement from the leadership of our nation in the office of the president referring to Latin immigrants as animals. And the pronouncement has led to policy, which in turn has led to purely racist and barbaric procedures of rejecting asylum seekers and their children and in turn separating children from their parents, a practice reminiscent of slavery in this country. Collectively, the leadership of this country, namely the United States Congress, has remained silent. It is history that will not be forgotten, however. Our original sin as a nation the near genocide of Native Americans refuses to die. And our second sin of slavery is not dead. It cannot be covered up. We cannot whitewash it, pun intended. And it will surely keep on repeating itself as long as we allow it. And as long as we, the people, elect representatives who are white supremacists and demagogues. It is the judges who are interfering these days, not the Congress. Remember that. Michael Eric Dyson, distinguished professor of sociology at Georgetown University, metaphorically looks Trump, Congress, and all of us straight in the eye and makes some rather astounding and confrontational declarations. One is that we are not a white Christian nation. Get over it. Two, Trump is treating much of America the way black people have been treated from the beginning 400 years ago. And many are outraged, particularly a lot of white people. Three, Trump has forgotten the rules. You can't treat white people that way. Dyson does an analysis of the Jim Crow era of immigration laws, drinking fountains for white and colored, the symbolic height of adolescent bravura and competition. Mine is better than yours. Dyson continues, it is unbearable to white America for Donald Trump to treat them like 
they treated us. In short, he's confused his pronouns. They could abide the language and grasp the comparison. Many whites would cry out with James Baldwin, I am not your nigger. James Baldwin recognized 50 years ago that racism is built upon white supremacy and arrogance and ignorance. To unpack Dyson's comments for a moment, let me add some biblical and theological commentary. I know that's tough for many of you, but I'm going to do it anyway. White evangelicals, certainly not all of them, are still imprisoned by a cancerous, barbaric bibliolatry that is a sickness unto death. It's cherry-picked literalism based upon the fear of a vengeful God, a theology of retribution and relief only when abortion ends and they enter heaven that is reserved only for those who vote Republican. We get a snapshot of what's going on from textbooks and curriculum materials put out by fundamentalist presses for homeschooling. This is happening right now. These materials being used to teach millions of our children assert that America was discovered by white European Protestants. Think about that for a moment. The natives rejected God, so therefore were not blessed. The Civil War was unfortunate because it splintered our nation, taking God's blessing away. Slavery may have been wrong, but it wasn't that bad because it helped make America what it is. The modern age is rife with problems, most of them the fault of humanists and liberals. The assertion is that these texts is that America was founded upon a biblical morality that is supreme above all others. It is what progressive scholars call a domination theology. It always sees modernism and liberalism as evils of a corrupt world. It is a theology of white supremacy and the domination of white Protestantism over blacks and Native Americans. This absolute rubbish is being taught under our very noses right now, thanks to the likes of Betsy DeVos and others, and will hold sway until and unless we find appropriate ways to stop it. We are not a white nation, Dyson's second point. The Great South was inhabited, populated by, and developed by slaves. The great cities of the South, like Birmingham and Atlanta, the steel mills, rose because of Jim Crow. Slaves built the South. We live with many myths and lies, but the real history refuses to die. It refuses to die because the very people who have lived the history, inherited the history, feel the history in their souls, won't let it die. Native Americans will tell their sacred stories, 
and share their sacred pain that we might hear the very cries of an injured earth. Black people will tell their story so that we of white privilege might listen, might listen, might listen. And when we do finally hear, deep down in the rivers of our soul, then maybe we can speak. Then maybe we can speak in order to heal, in order to love more fully, in order to hope. Sea Raven, my beloved, and I are about to take you on a bit of a journey about two pieces of that history that will not die. They won't die because they proclaim great truths. This is not for entertainment. It's education, to be sure, but it is soul work that cuts to the very core of who and what we are as a people citizens of a nation that has sparks of greatness, but many sparks that are not great at all. We cannot be neutral in this campaign. It is up to us, particularly those of us of white privilege, myself included, to be counterpoint to so much of what is happening. In part, this is a presentation by those who are taking action, concrete action, including the Metropolitan Art Museum in New York, the Brewer Museum, which is affiliated with the Met, and especially the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, and the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona as I mentioned before, which is a Native American museum. The artists here in the scenes that you will see all hail from the American South. Remarkably diverse in media and technique, the works in the exhibition nonetheless suggest their makers' cultural and aesthetic kinship through the use of found and repurposed materials. Nicole talked about quilts. Those are used, repurposed materials. You use what you have. You use what you have. And what you don't have, you can't use, of course. Their subjects are likewise varied, rooted in personal history and experience, regional identity, particularly common legacies of slavery and post-reconstruction histories of oppression under the black codes and Jim Crow laws, in addition to national and international events. The first picture is entitled The End of November, Birds That Didn't Learn How to Fly. This painting is one in a series that features hanging blackbirds made from the artist's used paint rags and old gloves. The creatures are a signifier of Jim Crow, the general label for state and local racial segregation laws and practices, 
The evocative subtitle is meant to suggest the lynching and terror visited on, on blacks in the South. Additionally, animals often serve as avatars in Dial's work. Particular examples such as the tiger function as symbols of human surrogates. Birds represent freedom in his symbolic universe and the inability to fly here suggests the early denial and the absence of liberty. Come November, the birds are unable to migrate to warmer weather and thus are left to die. Joe Minter, 400 years of free labor. 400 years of free labor. Lonnie Holly, Grown Together, 1994, evokes the tangled histories of labor in the artist's home of Birmingham, slavery and steel manufacturing. Like most Southern Americans, Holly traces his ancestry back to slavery, symbolized by the cotton tree root. Birmingham was a city that grew from modern industry when rural freemen came to work in dangerous iron blast furnaces and coal mines. The steel and wire represent the African-American labor force that established the city as the industrial center of the southeast. Grown together in the title refers to how these forms of labor laid Birmingham's foundations. Lonnie Holly. African Mask, 2004, showing a welder's mask mounted onto and encircled by a shredded radial tire and various plastic objects, including an electrical socket. The welder's mask evokes the experience of men of African descent as they entered the modern industrial workplace engaging the identity politics of race and labor. The work alludes to the institutional racism, often in the context of labor unions, that limited African Americans' access to the necessary training for skilled jobs like welding. Holly's sculpture is a stark evocation of the post-industrialized South. The cross and the lynching tree. And this is perhaps the hardest one of all for those of us who do not stand inside of the matrix of the Christian faith and a radical understanding of the cross. Uh, <clears throat> Strange fruit. This is Alison Sar. Tim, tin alloy, wood dirt, found objects, rope and paint, pointedly taking inspiration from the haunting evocation of lynching in a song immortalized by Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit, presents a black female nude as a critical subject rather than merely a body on which violence is inflicted. Although trussed by her ankles, the figure defies the stillness and horizontality of death by resisting and eerily swaying. 
Her body is clad with embossed metal plates in a form of sacrification of armor, while her abdomen is stuffed in a way that is reminiscent of West African Nietzsche power figures. In the pose of an upturned Venus Padica, but liberated from a pedestal, this black female body is presented as capable of upending white Western patriarchal narratives of culture and classical sculpture. The cross and the lynching tree. One of the galleries at the Brewer contained several representation of the crucified Christ. These sculptures from the Middle Ages and even more recently were intended to convey the humanity of Jesus and the reality of his death. For Orthodox Christian, the purpose was to graphically convince believers of Jesus' miraculous resurrection. But for present-day, postmodern, progressive Christians, and you're looking at two of them, these images represent something that is radically different. We invite you to suspend your usual rejection of crucifixion images and radically orthodox Christianity in order to go inside to appreciate the profound metaphors that are contained in these images, especially when they are juxtaposed. Jesus Seminar biblical scholar Art Dewey writes, crucifixion meant a total social shunning. Hear that, please, as a metaphor. Crucifixion meant a total social shaming. The victim was reduced to nothing. His memory, along with his body, was was to be deleted from the social registry. Not even his relatives and friends would want to enshrine this trauma. Now look at these two images. The lynching of a naked woman and Jesus hanging from a cross with blood flowing out of his body. Now ask yourselves, how on earth can these be images of power? How on earth can they be images of power? And yet they are. Dewey goes on to write, imagine that tortured one hanging from a tree before a gawking crowd. Call that nobody master. And when you do that, you see that the theology is not about a hero's journey, not about a hero's death. To put these images together is both a condemnation of imperial power and an assertion of nonviolent resistance and hope. Supple plunder. A 
projector shows slow motion footage of a bullet ripping through ballistic gel. Beneath are nine clear human torsos to be stacked on pedestals like classical busts. Yunanangan men were bound together, Indian men, twelve bound together and shot to see how far the bullet would penetrate. Nine fell dead. The incident is cited as part of the atrocities during Russian colonization in the Aleutian Islands in the 1760s. Things are looking native. Natives looking whiter. This is commentary on cultural appropriation in popular media, especially in fantasy and science fiction, which commonly adopts visual signifiers from non-Western cultures, but features almost exclusively white directors and actors. Galanin's work comments upon how a massive media franchise like Star Wars has created and perpetuated a visual image immediately recognizable to the vast majority of people with any exposure to Western media utilizing decontextualized imagery derived from non-Western cultures. We dreamt death. The taxidermy polar bear shot in the 1970s in the village now swallowed by a rising sea melts into trophy form. Half animal, half rug, fixed in the struggle to survive an unsustainable condition. Galanin speaks to colonizers and colonized, to generations past and future, to humans as an animal forgetful of our place in the world. The polar bear becomes an iconic symbol of the struggle for survival of animals and cultures against energy extraction. These images are meant to imbue us with power, the power to speak, and to speak not only with meaning, but with an eye to change. Years ago, in 1924, to be exact, a great author and poet, James Weldon Johnson, who wrote, by the way, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the Black National Anthem, wrote another poem called God's Trombone. The words were of late applied to Martin Luther King, but they apply also to us. They apply to us. And I want to end with this poem. Take him, Lord, this morning. Wash him with hyssop 
inside and out. Hang him up and drain him dry of sin. Pin his ear to the wisdom post. And make his words sledgehammers of truth. Beating on the iron heart of sin. Lord God this morning. Put his eye to the telescope of eternity. And let him look upon the paper walls of time. Lord, turpentine his imagination. Put perpetual motion in his arms. Fill him with the dynamite of power. Anoint him all over with the oil of thy salvation. And set his tongue on fire. Amen, and so let it be.